Good morning. Great to be here with you today. My name is Andy. I'm the lead pastor here at High Point. Always a pleasure to get to worship with you uh, here. This is the 1808. This is our historic church that we've been renting for some time. If this is your first time here, we are thrilled uh, to get to worship with you today. And uh, welcome to all of you who are watching online, who are streaming online. Welcome to you as well. Uh, it's a joy to get to worship uh, with you as well. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we are in a series called Chairs, Real Creative Chairs, right? Chairs have a way, though, of kind of representing a little bit of where we are in life, right? There's the, I mean, think about all the different chairs that you sit in, right? There's the, there's the pool chair, right? There's the video game entertainment chair, which we've We've preached through those chairs, which kind of represent a little bit of that relaxed life, the pool life, the margarita life, the pina colada life. Like, let me just, let me just kind of kick back, put the feet up and not have a care in the world. Uh, we like to call that biblically speaking, uh, drifting into a little bit of a place of apathy, right? Oh, we love to sit in that chair. There's the baby chair. Ooh, uh-oh. The chair where you sit and you just kind of stay immature. You're unable to feed yourself, right? And so it's feed me, feed me, see more. Little, little shop of horrors, rep, you know, repping right there. If anybody ever, no? Okay, all right. I dated myself right there, right? But feed me, feed me. And, and, and we stay immature the the baby chair the high chair there are folding chairs there's the office chair now the office chair is an interesting thing isn't it because because what this represents i mean what do you think of when you when you think of the office chair and many of us have them you know you might have a cubicle that you're sitting in at work or maybe you got one of these Fancy bad boys at the house. Yeah, anybody? Anybody got an office chair in their home because they work out of their house a little bit? You, you don't want some garbage chair. You need an office chair. You need someone with a little cushion, some lumbar support. Okay, come on now. Right, the, the office chair. Well, what does the office chair represent? It's the, it's the chair of power. Is it not? It's the chair of decision. It's the chair of getting things done. It's the chair of control, right? It's the chair where you are the one making the calls and making the shots. And the reality is this, when we look at different chairs that we sit in, or might I add, get stuck in, one of the most prolific chairs that we find ourselves unable to, to just get out of is the chair of control. For all of you who, who are familiar with, you know, well, how many of you can't stand to let anybody else drive? Uh-oh. Okay. I wasn't actually asking for a show of hands, but you just revealed yourself, right? You might, you might be affectionately called a control freak, right? A control freak. And other spouses are looking and they're like, yeah, that's totally you, right? You're the one. Right? A control freak. Right? I, I get it. And, and 
in case we're, we're left like not dishing it out, like we, we laugh about this, but it's a real thing. And oftentimes, control works on the other side of that fence as well, where we're all too willing to give it up and hand it over. You might have a control problem as well. It's not seizing it. It's letting go of what God has actually asked you to do. You forfeit your responsibility. You guys with me this morning? But the reality is this. We're not going to be using the terms control freak. I want to dumb it down a little bit for us today because I I don't think this message is really reserved for just those kinds of people who are fanatics about having to be in control of something like the car. I think this is something that literally every single person struggles with in degrees and levels that, that we oftentimes don't acknowledge or even like to admit. When you look at the Bible, starting in Genesis 1 all the way to the back cover, what we see are a people who are struggling with who is going to ultimately be king of their lives. In other words, it's an issue of control. Who is going to really be in control of your life? But we love to kind of, you know, we have a nice little cute picture of this. We don't recognize it for what it is, for the problem that it actually is in our lives. But think about it. We think of the sanitized versions of control. Maybe you grew up and you had, maybe you had a tough go. Maybe you've had some really painful things. Many people have experienced abuse from in different levels and different experiences. So then you grow up, you get married, maybe you have kids. I'm I realize that's not the trajectory for everyone. Don't hear that you've got to do that. But for many, that's kind of what it looks like. And then you have kids. And what do you want your kids to experience? You want them to experience something different than what you experienced. And so what is it that you do unintentionally with no, with, with the noblest interests in mind, all of the sudden, out of fear and out of anxiety, you create scenarios where you are micromanaging, where you are hovering over the kids, where you are controlling all the different aspects and elements of their life, all in an effort to prevent them from experiencing pain. I have bad news for you. You can't do it. And you will drive everyone around you crazy trying to control the situation hovering over every text message that comes in every moment your kid has with another kid and blah 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 blah. am i saying parents don't be protective no i'm not am i saying don't be a good mom and dad no i'm not but what i am saying is we can go too far Think of the other different scenarios where control plays out in your life. We've got, we've got so many situations and so many scenarios. Maybe you struggle with significance or insecurity. And so what do you do in this moment? You try to prevent yourself from being in situations. Number one, where you get embarrassed, where you might be wrong. You have to create an image that is just untarnished. I can't possibly be wrong here because then I would look a certain way and so you you work so hard to remain in control. And you present an image oh, that you have finally crafted. But far be it from you 
to ever be corrected, to experience resistance, to be challenged at work. Oh, those things set you off. Why? Because it disrupts your sense of control, which you've put in place in order to, once again, protect yourself. You guys with me this morning? You guys tracking? So we get in this chair and we call the shots. And even though this seems harmless, and even though I'm talking about interpersonal relationships right now, where this really bleeds out in harmful ways, disruptive ways, is your relationship with God. We're going to pray. We're going to get into the text today. And then I want you to see in your own life where maybe you are struggling in ways you don't even see right now to try and control this relationship. And I have bad news for you, followed by good news. There's no way for you to control God, in case you didn't know. He's king, but he's a good king. Father, be with us as we get into the text today. As we get into your word, speak to us, lead us, encourage us, and set us free, God. Help us to get out of this chair. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Luke chapter 12, Jesus is preaching, he's teaching, and here we have a a moment where, where somebody comes to Jesus and they want Jesus to do something. I mean, he is Jesus after all, right? If you needed something, isn't this, he's like the guy to go to. So here we have in Luke chapter 12, we have a moment with with an unnamed gentleman who comes to Jesus, verse 13. We're going to read through the text and we're going to break it into pieces. And he says, someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Between you, between like the two of you. Why, why, in other words, why are you getting me involved in this? And, and this is, this reminds me, it's like, you ever go through the drive-through line, okay? My wife and I, we, we, my wife Amy and I, sometimes these become moments for us. She just said, interesting. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to hear how this goes, Pastor Andy. So here we are in, the, in Chick-fil-A. It's kind of the go-to for us. But you have, you know, the drive-through and the window comes down and the intercom comes on and you're, you're trying to communicate the order. And if you've got other voices in the backseat, right, all of a sudden you have a cacophony of voices telling you their order, right? And you can't even keep it all straight. It drives me insane, right? Am I, am I in the, am I the voice communicating with the person on the intercom or am I not? Right? And so what happens oftentimes is people will be speaking and they're trying to get their order to me, but, but then the person that's on the intercom doesn't know, like, are you talking to me? Or are you talking to the driver? It, it becomes this thing where it's like, who is saying what? Right? No one clearly has this problem like I do. Right? But sometimes I just want to be, I just am like, you go ahead and you just tell him what you want. Like, don't make me the middleman here. Clearly, you want to just say this. Okay? 
a lot of we, we call that backseat driving, passenger seat driving, okay? Passenger seat ordering, right? Pa- or, or backseat ordering, or maybe incompetence in the driver's seat. Who knows? Who knows how it gets labeled? But understand this. Many times when it comes to your relationship with God, God is sitting in the driver's seat positionally. That's where he is. You recognize him as such, but you're the one in the, dry, in the passenger seat or sometimes even in the back seat. And you're dictating to God what you want him to do, what you want him to say, how you want him to act. He's just the middleman for you to get what you want. Are you with me this morning? Right? And so this man comes to Jesus, the teacher, right? And he is bossing Jesus around. He says, teacher, tell my brother this. He doesn't like invite Jesus into a conversation. He doesn't say, hey, can I get your wisdom or your advice or what do the scriptures say? No, he just rolls up right out of the crowd. Teacher, tell my brother this. In other words, I need you to do this. So let's get it done. You're my guy with me this morning. And how many times do we do the same thing in our relationship with God? What is the primary issue here? Control. It's a control issue. Luke 12, verse 15. So Jesus said to them, watch out, exclamation point. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Okay. This is the parable that Jesus shares. Now, let's, let's, not be, let's not mistake the actual heart of this parable. Jesus is without a doubt talking to this man about a heart that has been gripped by greed. And so he tears down his barns and he builds bigger ones, all for, for the extra stuff that he's got. He's doing well, okay? And Jesus is, is addressing this, but there are, are so many things happening that are setting up the issue of greed. And it begins with the man coming to Jesus and telling Jesus what he wants him to do. And we actually see the seed of this control problem at work throughout this very parable. Jesus could have actually talked about anger. He could have talked about fear, anxiety, or worry, because Control, when you disrupt your sense of control, oh my, it's amazing the different responses that come out of it. This man's response to control was greed. But for many of us, the the response is anger. For many of you, the response is fear. For many of you, the response is to be anxiety, which is why things like anxiety, the epidemic of the age, people not knowing what to do with their anxiety is actually, for many, a sense of feeling a loss of control. It's spinning out of control, and I don't know how to process it or feel it or deal with it. (sighs) 
This man, his issue was greed, but it could be anxiety or fear. It could be raging anger. We all can see that. Every TV show in the world shows somebody losing control, and what do they do? They hulk out. They've lost control. Control is the deception, and that is what it is. It's a deception that you can create a better life for yourself than God. That's the thing about it is it's, it's deceiving. This chair is nasty. Oh, it looks clean, and it is clean. Make no mistake about it. It's pretty. It's nice, cushy leather. Like, it feels so good, and it feels nice, and that is the deception. You sink into this and you start calling the shots and it feels so right. It feels so good because you're the one that's in control. You're orchestrating it. It feels great to be in this chair, the chair of control, but it's all a deception. You're not really calling the shots. You think you are, you feel like you are, but when things start to spin out of control, you realize how little control you really had in the first place. Is God really God? Is God really king? Is he really in charge? Is he really at work? Or is he not? Who's really in charge? So Jesus shares this parable. And I gotta be honest with you, this is a parable for me that I, I highlight in my Bible. Not because I'm like, wow, I feel really seen and ministered to. But I get confused when I read this story. And it's because I bring my Western lens to it. This guy works really hard. And he's really successful. Am I right? So much so that he's got surplus. And he's like, man, what should I do with this stuff? And that's literally the question he says. What should I do? And so he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to store it. In other words, I'm going to have a great savings plan. I'm going to have great retirement set up. This is going to be boss. And you know what? I'm going to be able to actually kind of kick my feet up and relax a little bit heading into my twilight years here, or however old he is. I don't even know. And that's the story. And this this is Jesus. This is the parable that Jesus is sharing. And we read this, we gloss over it most of the time. Why? Because we read it and like, I don't see any problem here. It doesn't resonate with us that there is a deep problem and a deep issue with this man's response to what's happening in his life, his success, his favor, his surplus. Don't hear this as a sermon on giving today. That is not the purpose of this sermon today. Oh, you can certainly apply it to that. But there's a much larger issue at hand, and it is the issue of control. There are problems here. This man has a problem that you and I, most people don't relate to. In fact, the crowd would have had a difficult time relating to. How many people do do you wish your problem was, I have so much, I just don't know what to do with it. Can you honestly resonate with that? Most of you probably cannot. And the crowd that's listening to Jesus probably cannot. They're not connecting to the details of this story. And yet the very thing that is is common to all of humanity, 
whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, is that you run into this question of, God, I don't know what to do. And that is the heart of the problem here. And we see something that feels innocuous to us. It doesn't feel like a big deal. This man says, I don't know what to do. And then he says, this is what I'm going to do. In other words, and, and notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, God, what should I do? He just asks himself, what should I do? And then he comes to a conclusion of himself. This is what I'm going to do. It still, even as I'm preaching this, I can see it in your face. Where you're like, yeah, uh, okay. This doesn't feel like that big of a deal. You got a guy who's made a lot of money. He's worked hard. He's earned it. This is his moment to enjoy his life. And yet the issue at hand that Jesus is getting at, even beyond the greed, is that this man never takes the time to seek God Ask God, pursue God, consider God. He simply takes all matters into his hands. Why? Because he's got it all under control. I've got this. I've got it under control. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build some bigger barns. And it's going to be great. And I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Doesn't that sound like what everyone is aspiring to, basically, in this world? And yet Jesus literally is condemning it, and he's saying, this man, which we'll get to, is a fool. How? Because he doesn't take the time to really seek the heart of the king of this kingdom. He isn't really pursuing the heart of God. He's making the call. He's making the decision. He's calling the shots. He's bearing the responsibility. He's getting in that chair and he's making it happen. That's it. And Jesus is saying, I don't think so. Bad idea. This man is a fool. Whew. That's convicting. So, where do you take control? Don't actually answer it out loud. But where are you taking control in your life? And all of us can answer this. Where do you have problems? Because everybody has problems. Everybody has scenarios where, you're, where you should be able to say, I'm not really sure what I should do here. Everyone should have... Hear me again, everyone should have moments and seasons and periods and scenarios where you're saying to yourself, I'm not entirely sure what I should do here. What is the, the response I should have? Maybe I should pray about it. Maybe I should seek God about it. What should I do? Where do you have problems? Where in your life should God have a more active role than he currently does. So here are a couple, couple scenarios, a couple problems. For time's sake, I'm going to speed it up. 
you've got the problem of just, I have no idea because I'm, I'm truly ignorant, right? And I'm not going to spend time here on that one. Like you just have no idea. That's a problem, right? You are unaware of God's existence or, or what is right or wrong given a, a scenario or a situation, a, a, a thing of morality. You just don't know. You're clueless. Okay, that's, that, that, that's real life. But then there's the, I desperately need you problem. Think about this in your own life. Think of, uh, of your, you're overwhelmed because, because you need a miracle. You need God to move and you need God to show up. That is a problem. We heard, we heard Kellen testifying to God's goodness and faithfulness in showing up in the midst of a problem. And when you are desperate, do you know what you never have problems doing? You never have problems asking God, what should I do? When you are desperate for truth and you are desperate for breakthrough, some of you know this, you don't have an issue praying, you don't have an issue asking, you don't have an issue seeking, you don't, you don't have an issue with anything faith-related. You're desperate, okay? That's what it looks like. Yes, you've got a problem and you're desperate for God to move. Then you've got the I know what to do problem. If there's a problem that plagues Western Christianity, I actually think it's this. What should I do? This is what I'll do. And so we take matters into our own hands. I want you to hear this because whether you go to the gym, whether you're at work, there is, there is a, a propensity and a temptation to invent faith and religion to our making and to our liking. And we've got this problem in, in, in the same way that this, the, the barn builder, he has a problem. And some of it is this right here, I, 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 the quote unquote, I know what to do problem he's the man he's good at his job in fact i need to i need to actually just read this rarely do we recognize this for the problem that it really is but if there's a problem plaguing western christianity it's this he's successful he's good at his job he needs to tear down and build bigger barns people are probably asking him for financial advice for business advice and most of what he has to offer is probably really good stuff. And my pastor, he, he said to me when I was in college, he said, Andy, one of the most dangerous places for Christians to get, specifically even pastors at the time, he was talking to me about worship, is when a worship pastor gets really good at leading worship. You've become so successful at it that you're able to kind of bop along through life and you have sat in this chair and you don't even really need to ask him anymore because you've gotten good at managing your life. You've gotten good at your craft. You've gotten good at your skill. And so no longer do you need to pursue him or his kingdom. Why? Because you're successful and you know what to do. You've gotten good at it. I have, I, I can tell you this. I don't do this, but I could. I've been preaching now for 20 years. I can write a sermon 
without ever asking God what he wants me to say. And that sermon can actually be pretty good. And I don't mean that arrogantly. I just mean I've been doing it now for 20 years. I can write a sermon because I know how to do it. I've gotten good at it. I know the rhythm of it. In the same way that the businessman, he knows how to run business. But guess what is void in this situation? Real relationship with God and asking him as the true king and the one that's in control, what do you want me to do? My oldest son just turned 14. It's hard to believe. I'm going to tell a story. He's like, oh no. Right? When, when my kids were little, first of all, your, your firstborn child oftentimes wants to be in charge. Those are generally the facts. No different in my house or my family, although I think I have several children that all like to be in charge. But nevertheless, um, you know, sometimes you have kids in there, they try to boss the other kids around. They're going to try to be mom or dad in this situation. Sometimes they try to exert discipline. They try to create rules that everyone else has to abide by. They're going to enforce it. They're going to make it happen. Why? Because they want to be in charge. And there was on one such occasion where my oldest was doing that very thing where he just, he was in charge. He felt like he was in charge and he was exerting his firstborn status, right, over the other children. And this is how it's going to go. And mom and dad had to step in and we had to say, hey, hold on a second. Are you in charge here? And you, you see the wheels turning. Who's in charge? Mom. Who else is in charge? Dad, you are also in charge? That's right. Who's in charge? Are you, th- are you mom and dad here? No. Are you the boss here? Are you? No. And you, you get them saying, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not. Okay, who is? This person is. This person is. That's exactly right. So before I leave this room, I want to, I want to just... Let's make sure that we're on the same page. Who is the boss? You and mom. That's right. Long pause. But I'm still the little boy boss, right? As in like, okay, okay, I recognize that you are in charge, but what you need to recognize is that I'm I'm still kind of a little bit in charge. You've got to understand my role here, Dad. I am still a little bit in charge. And is this not the way that we relate to God over and over again? Jesus, you are my king. I love you. I worship you. I'm going to get baptized and I'm going to follow you. Oh, but by the way, even though you're in charge, I'm still a little bit in charge. I'm still kind of running things. And once I get really good at this, 
I don't really need to consult you about this anymore, that anymore, this anymore, or that anymore. In fact, I need things to work out better for me. And so I'm going to sit in this chair because after all, if I'm in control, I've bought into the deception that somehow I can create a life for me that is a little bit better than you. A little bit better than how you are operating and running in managing the affairs of my life. And that is the deception of control. So much so that even with something as subtle and innocuous as surplus, this guy's got some extra money on his hands and he is getting busted up by Jesus in a parable. Why? Because he doesn't ask God what to do with it. It's that simple. This man is in the hot seat simply because he is not asking God what to do. He has everything under his control. And as Westerners, you've got to hear this, church. This is a struggle, a problem, a weight upon the American church as Christians. We would rather say that Jesus is our king, have some great worship moments where we clap our hands and celebrate him as such, and then we go and walk out the door and we're still the little boy king or the little girl king, still kind of calling the shots. But God has called us to something so much greater than that. And I realize even as I say it, we might be sitting here thinking, it still doesn't feel like this is that bad. Sitting in this seat doesn't feel that bad. Even how you've described it, Pastor Andy, doesn't seem, that I can, is it really that much of an issue? But understand this, if Jesus isn't really king, and if God is really not the one running and managing and operating as the boss of our life, well then whose responsibility is it? It's left to you. It's left to you to build your life. It's left for you to make everything operate properly. It's up to you to have every relationship function this way and that. It's up to you to order your home. It's up to you to do dot, 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 and this, and that, and this, and that. And if it's up to you, to bear that responsibility, which you've never been designed to bear, is it any surprise that you would struggle with feeling anxious? <sighs> with feeling worried? With feeling afraid? With feeling angry about it? With feeling insert the emotion? Is it any surprise if you're the one Who's responsible for all this? Is it really that much of a surprise? And what's interesting is that Jesus, he goes on, he, he tells this parable. And then he goes into one of the most famous portions of the Bible. Well, we know this, we get this, we gloss over the first part and we get to this. What is it that Jesus says? He says, man, this fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you, you know, man. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but isn't rich towards God. In other words, rich towards relationship with God. 
You think you're under, you, you've got this in control, but you don't. You can't even control the days of your life. You don't get to control how many hairs are on your head. You control ultimately very little. And then he says, consider this though. As your heart starts to pound and your breathing becomes ragged because you realize, I don't, I don't have control, right? I'm losing my grip. But Jesus says, consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor. They don't spin. Did I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, it's thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, don't set your heart on what you will eat or what you will drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. Seek first what? His kingdom. The good life with Jesus is found through a surrendered life to Jesus. Where you acknowledge Him as King and we simply pursue Him and ask Him. And what do we do as Jesus commanded? We build up a richness in relationship with God. How do you do that? By getting up in the morning and you say to yourself, God, your kingdom, not mine. Right? When, when, when you've got a frustrating moment and you don't know what to do. God, your kingdom, not mine. Your kingdom first, not Andy's kingdom. In your relationship, in your marriage, in your parenting, God, your kingdom first, not mine. In your giving at church, God, your kingdom first, not mine. In your relationship at the baseball field, God, your kingdom, not mine. In your relationship at the, at the gym, Jesus, your kingdom first, not mine. This isn't about my kingdom. I don't have the right to sit in this control, in this chair. Jesus, your king, it's your kingdom. I'm not sitting in it. I invite you here. I am pursuing you, Jesus, your kingdom, not mine. Alarm goes off. Getting ready for work. Feet over the side of the bed trying to put your little slippers on. How do you start the day? Jesus, your kingdom first. Not mine. What should I do, God? And then do it. Not, what should I do? This is what I'm going to do. No, God, God, what should I do? Listen, read his word, and then do it. Seek first his kingdom, not my kingdom, but your kingdom. Stand to your feet.